All right, let's get into our Bible study. Y'all ready? I got about four hours to crunch into 30 minutes. Is that all right? <laughs> Which is the way it goes with me. It's just the way it is. I, I find the Bible so fascinating. And um, I, I know some of y'all think I preach long, but I don't preach long as it is in my spirit. I can promise you that I, I would go on for days, really. Uh, it's just fascinating. And we get to study God's Word together. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's God's Word to us. All right, take your Bible, turn to Hebrews 6, your phone, your tablet, whatever you're doing. And if you're joining us on Facebook, God bless you. Thank you. And the volume sounds okay, too. Don't no, seem like it. Yeah, check that volume. All right. All right, so uh, Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, we're in this series called Foundations, and this will be part number 4. Uh, let's, let's read verse 1 and 2, and uh, let's read these six foundations again. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again, and he lists these foundations, important foundations, the foundation of repentance from dead works, we've talked a little bit about that, and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. So you saw all six of them right there. We've talked about repentance from dead works. We've talked about faith towards God a little bit. really didn't want to let that one go. I needed to spend a few more hours on that one, actually. But the whole Bible just kind of preaches faith to us. This is a God you can believe in. This is a God you can trust. And here's why. It tells a story after story of His grace and His mercy and His, his consistency and His faithfulness. Then we, we're going to get into the doctrine of baptisms tonight. Later on, we'll do the laying on of hands. We're going to spend at least two times together on baptisms. Now, notice that that, that idea of baptisms, it doesn't say the doctrine of baptism. It says the doctrine of baptisms. Okay, so the Bible speaks a lot about this idea of what baptisms are. Now, notice the order because I think the order is important as well, at least to these three, these first three. Uh, the, the order of coming into this kingdom is... You come through the doorway of repentance. The repentance is what? Remember, remember our definition of repentance? What was that? It's the changing of your mind and the changing of your direction, right? That idea to turn from something in order and turn towards something else, right? That's the idea of repentance. And it's mostly a decision. Now, sometimes there's a lot of emotion involved in it. And sometimes us, us preachers, we, we make it very emotional. And it, is a, it, it can be that depending on where you are in life and what, what decisions you need to make. But more than an emotion, it's a decision. And it's a decision. And I personally believe that if everybody had all the facts about God and about His idea of life and what the kingdom is, everybody that is of a right mind would make that decision if they got the right information. But there's so much deception and cloudiness going on about the kingdom and all the kind of stuff Jesus talks about. But it's the idea of turning away from something in order to turn towards God. And that's the idea of faith. When, when you turn towards God through Jesus Christ, that's the idea of faith. It's repentance, faith, and baptisms. Okay, that's, that's the order. And in fact, we, we think about baptism. What's, what's the one thing you think about when you hear the word baptisms? What do you think about the most? Being baptized. You think of water baptism, all right? Now, what I want to do tonight is, a, is to lay a foundation. We're actually not even going to get to too much water baptism because I'm, I'm going to lay a foundation of what the idea of baptism is about in the Scripture, okay? We're going to look at a lot of Old Testament stuff. And what I want you to leave here, understanding why we do what we do. Because for so many, water baptism has kind of become like a dead ritual or it's just a go through the motions thing. And there's something that you look at and see and you see it in church. And you go to a church like ours and there's a water baptismal tank in the back. You know, that kind of thing. But what is, what's really going on? There's something supernatural that's actually happening in a person's life when that kind of thing happens. All right. So why do we do what we do? All right. So 
definition here. It's real simple. The idea of baptism or to baptize, it means to immerse. Everybody say immerse. To immerse or submerge is the idea. That, that's one reason why we practice the, the, the uh, ceremony of baptism the way we do. Other traditions may sprinkle and things like that. But staying true to the idea of the biblical idea of what baptism is, it's the idea of immersion, to immerse somebody. Now, there's, there's two main church sacraments. Uh, one is Holy Communion. You know, it's where we take the bread and the wine and remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And the other major church sacrament is the idea of water baptism. Okay, it's a, it's a really, really big deal. And in fact, in, in many cultures in the East, you're really not even considered to be a convert until you are publicly water baptized. It's, the, it's, it's a very, very important thing in the Christian tradition and in the scriptures as well. Uh, what, what baptism is, is a powerful representation of what God does. It's, 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 I, I've, the longer I've been in this thing, the more I appreciate the idea of, of baptism. I used to just teach it as a, as a you know, um, as a ceremony, but it's so much, it's so crazy how the story's all connected in this idea of baptism. You'll see that in just a moment. Uh, for lack of a better way to explain it, and when you're explaining these supernatural things that happen in people's lives and what God does, it, it, sometimes you're at a lack of words, but, but this idea of cleaning agents, cleaning agents, you know, we, we've got them in our house, the things we use to clean certain things. Well, God's got cleaning agents too. It, they're, they're some of them, they're physical things sometimes, but they represent a supernatural idea. Three cleaning agents in the scriptures. There's the blood, remember? In the Old Testament, Levitical order was animal sacrifices. The blood of animals, the innocent animals, was to take the sins of the guilty, right? So blood is, is, is a cleaning agent to God. Uh, water is a cleaning agent. And the Word, the Word of God is a cleaning agent. And, and these three elements right here, these three agents, these cleaning agents, you actually see them in the baptism of Jesus, which we'll get to that next week, Lord willing. You see the blood, the Lamb of God, who, whose blood will take away the sin of the world. You have Jesus standing in the waters of the Jordan River, and the Word of God speaks from heaven. It's just really neat to see that connection to me. So it's the idea of immersion, all right? Now, baptisms, these are sacred landmark experiences. The, the, when, when I say landmarks, they're... You know, when, when, when you're going down a familiar path, uh, uh, your journey, you have certain landmarks that you look for, and they let you know you're on the right path, right? Baptism is kind of like that. It's, it's, it's a landmark experience. It's an experience where we literally make a mark in our walk and our journey with God and our life, and we say, this is something that happened to me, and it becomes one of those standing stone moments, one of those testimony, witness moments to me and all of those in my life that are together with me. It's a landmark experience to say, yes, I passed through this and there's a reason I passed through this and did this. Okay. Now the purpose of baptism is the idea of washing or cleansing or the idea of a change or transformation that is happening, happening in a person's life. Uh, so I want you to hone in a, a on this idea of cleansing because the, the scripture talks a lot about cleansing us being cleansed okay now baptism is for the sake of purity don't we need that and in fact actually in the scriptures purity is not a state that you get in it's a path that you walk it's you you are it's not that you well, you are more pure than you were last year hopefully or five years ago 
But purity is like a journey in, into God. Does that make sense to you? It's because we, we, we're not going to be pure until we see him. We're not going to be completely holy or sanctified until we see him. So purity in this realm becomes a journey that I walk where it says the pure in heart shall see God. The, the pure in heart, that's, that's a direction that my heart is, is pointed, is that I am, I am pursuing purity. I may need to ask for forgiveness. I may need to confess some sins to get, get through that. I, I may need to add some things to my life. I may need a cleansing. And, because Jesus teaches us to pray on a daily basis about the forgiveness of our sins. It's not that we're preoccupied with sin. It's that sin's preoccupied with us, really. <laughs> it's all around us. It's, it's, it's in us and working its way out sometimes. So purity becomes a journey. And baptism is, is part of that purification idea. Uh, baptism is also initiation into something new. It's, it's marking your entrance into the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, when a, when a woman is having a baby, how do they know the baby's coming? The water breaks, right? The water breaks. Well, that's that's one, one way to look at it. Because being born again into the kingdom of God is likened to a birth, isn't it? It's like you're, you're birthed into it. And this idea of water baptism becomes a part of that birthing process. At least the symbolic idea of it. And it's also the idea of consecration. Now, you probably not used the word consecration in a sentence this week, have you? <laughs> but, it, but it has to do with you consecrating yourself or you dedicating yourself to the service of God. Baptism becomes that. Uh, maybe a better word for us to understand is the idea of commitment. Consecration and dedication is the idea of you committing your life to follow Christ. And if you are calling yourself a Christian, that's what you're signing up for. Sometimes we're not all clear about it. We talk about a lot about going to heaven and hell and all that kind of stuff. But really, when somebody makes a commitment to become a Christian, they make a commitment to follow Christ. And that journey ends in heaven. You see what I'm talking about? And it's important because Jesus didn't say uh, when you die, you'll go to heaven. He said, I want you to come follow me. And where I'm going, there you can go also. That's what he tells his disciples, right? And we get there not by having our eyes on heaven. We get there by having our eyes on Jesus, who is the shepherd that leads us there. Does that make sense? I'm not mixing terms, but I'm, I'm telling you that seeing the Christian life like that is that you have your eyes on Jesus and not have your eyes on a destination. It's a big deal now. It's a big deal. It'll help you out a little bit. And baptism is also the idea of empowerment. And I think it's noted that Jesus did not step into his public ministry, do any miracles, really preach any public sermons that we know of. Until after the moment of his baptism. That's pretty significant. All right. More on that next week again. All right. Now, let's look at the first idea of, of baptism or to be baptized. 1 Corinthians 10, 2, Paul describes uh, this experience that ancient Israel had. He calls it being baptized into Moses. All right. 1 Corinthians 10, 2 says this. All, talking about ancient Israel. Okay. Remember the story of the Exodus. All of those folks were baptized into Moses in the cloud, and in the sea. He's talking about the Exodus experience, which if you want to know what salvation is about, okay, before you get to the cross, what the, the main story you have is the Exodus. The Exodus is the idea of God bringing us out of bondage into His glorious freedom, into the promised land, so to speak, right? So if, if you were to ask a Hebrew person, what is the idea of salvation? You get a cup of coffee and you sit down and they tell you the story of the Exodus. That's what salvation is in the Old Testament. 
In fact, when God gets ready to introduce himself to his people constantly, or, or he gets ready to address his people, you know what he always says? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who saved you, and this is how I saved you. And that experience marks the tradition of all the Hebrew people. Okay? And it's part of our heritage as well. Because when Jesus gets ready to go to the cross on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember we're talking about this guy named Elijah lately on Sundays, right? Moses and Elijah come and talk to Jesus. And in, in the original Greek, you know what it says? It says, they came and talked to him about his exodus. <laughs> See, Moses led them in an exodus out of Egypt. Elijah was was attempting to lead them in an exodus out of idolatry, Jesus is going to lead us out of an exodus of sin and death. That's a good day. <laughs> That's a good day. All right, so baptized into Moses. This is going to get a little bit technical, so just, just lock in with me. I, I believe one of the ideas is, is that they are to be immersed into the law of Moses. Uh, let me back up just one second. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You see that? In the cloud, what was the cloud? What did the cloud do? It, it led them, right? It guided them. Okay, it was a it was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and that led them. It's like it was before them and after them. It, it surrounded them and it followed them and it led them. It was. It's kind of weird how it says it, but that's the way God is. He leads us. He's with us, and he guards us in, in the back as well. All right, from the adversary. And then they passed through the waters of the, of the sea, right? Of the Red Sea. God, through Moses, parts the Red Sea. That is seen, as in, in Paul's eyes, that is seen. That parting of the Red Sea and Israel passing through that Red Sea, that is seen as a baptism in the Scriptures. Okay? All right. All right. Now, let's move on to the immersion into the law thing. I'm sorry. My mind gets faster than my mouth, or my mouth gets faster than my mind. I ain't sure which it is yet. I ain't figured it out after 50 years. <laughs> it's this idea of being immersed in the law of Moses. When I say the law of Moses, you, that, that's, that's the Torah, or maybe what some call the Pentateuch. That's the first five books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? That's the foundation of all scriptural truth, is those five books right there, okay? becomes the foundation of, of Christ. In fact, when the apostles preach, they preach a lot out of those books. You know, preach a lot out of Isaiah as well. This idea of, the, of immersed into the law of Moses, it, the law of Moses is full of purification rituals. It, sometimes it's a little odd for us to read, uh, but some of these practices are still in the world today. Purification rituals, blood sacrifices and atonement practices, confession of sins, Israel became accustomed to the idea of cleansing and forgiveness. They had all of these rituals that Moses taught them that said this is what's acceptable to God and this is what we must do to cleanse our souls before God, all right, and to be a clean and holy people before God. Now, I want to read one of these, these cleansing rituals in Numbers 19, 11, and 12. i got them right there in your notes, and it's right here on the screen as well. Just to give you the idea, now there's a lots of them. There's, there's lots of them, and it can get real technical when you get into the book of Leviticus. But here's just one real simple one. 19, 11, and 12 of Numbers, it says this. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. Now when the Bible says unclean, it doesn't mean that you become a sinner. It just means that you can't practice in particular rites and rituals and ceremonies and religious services, Right? So if it says you're unclean for seven days, that meant in Jewish tradition, you missed a Sabbath service. That's what it meant until the purification limit, the time frame was up. He shall purify himself with the water 
on the third day and on the seventh day. Then he will be clean. So there's a practice. There's a purification law that if you touch a dead body. Now, they didn't have funeral homes and morticians. So who handled the bodies? Well, their loved ones, they, each other. In fact, in the East, a lot of times they still do. Okay? And they bury on the same day, usually of death as well. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. So this is just an example of an idea that God wanted his people to live a certain way. Okay? And he wanted them to be acquainted with this idea of purification. All right? Now let's, let's just kind of list this out. Some of these words will become familiar to you. The idea of purification laws and rituals uh, from the books of Moses, the Torah. It taught about ideas concerning this idea of baptism. It taught about ideas of clean and unclean. Remember? Paul talks about some of that in the New Testament as well. All right? Of being pure and impure. Things being holy and unholy. Okay? And holy just simply means that something is unique. Okay? And it's... And, and, and maybe pure would be kind of an idea, but unique is the main idea. If, if some, or set apart for a unique purpose, okay? God only says that a few things are holy in the scripture, and he tells how to make it holy. He talks about his people being a holy priesthood. We are to be holy people, and there is the Holy Spirit who is a unique uh, being. He, he's, he's God. You know, there's the idea of holy. Your tithe is holy unto God, Right? Your tithe is holy. That, that, that belongs to him. That's to be set apart, and that is a unique part of your, your, your budget and your, your finances and resources. That is a unique part that is set aside for God. God's teaching us about holy and unholy things. You know, my, my, I probably said this to you before, but my parents taught me about that concerning church and, and life with people, that, that, that people are holy unto God. You know, so I was taught that I should respect people, especially uh, my elders. I was taught to say, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. Yes, sir, and no, sir. And, and that may seem trivial to some parents today, but it, it began to teach me respect and the idea of this is the right thing to do. And this is, th these people are important and I am to respect them. That's the idea of holy, you know, one of the ideas. Israel was taught about the idea of sin and consequences. That sin is far worse than you've ever imagined. And there were heavy, 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 heavy penalties on sin of almost all kinds. And either that penalty would be levied on a sacrifice, or maybe it would be levied on an individual. Sometimes it would be levied on a nation. But the idea of sin and its consequences is a big deal in Scripture, isn't it? And we've all sinned, and we've all tasted of some of those consequences as well. Then they were taught the idea of mercy and forgiveness that's built into these laws and rituals. Okay? And you know, the, the older I get, the, um, the more I appreciate rituals. Okay? I don't know. I think you've got to get a little age on you to figure it out. <laughs> you just do. Uh, because rituals and ceremonies, when they're done properly, they're part of what holds people in the community together. Now, there are traditions and things that Jesus said can take us off track and take us into... Uh, away from faith, away from God, okay? We've all been a part of that. We've probably got some we practice that do that. But rituals are really important. I mean, I, I, they, I've got rituals in my life. I think I mentioned this Sunday. I've got rituals in my life. When I, 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 I get up, I do certain things, and I go into a certain routine or ritual all the time, and that holds my life together and helps me until I get coffee to, to get some kind of semblance of order in my life, right? 
<laughs> and actually, coffee's part of one of my rituals, actually. <laughs> but we have those things uh, in, in, in our Christian community as well, and those are important. You, you realize that we kind of come together, and we kind of do the same things most times we come together. That's not because we don't have anything else to do. There's a reason we do that. There's a reason we come together. There's a reason we have the order where we, we come, we greet one another, we sing, and then we do the word. There's a reason for all that. That's part of our ritual in worshiping God. Now, we don't want to become just so ritualistic that everything loses its power and loses its significance. That, that can become a problem, too. But routine becomes a good thing the older you get, I can promise you. Just kind of hold your life together, you know, that kind of thing. All right. Now, as far as these purification laws, here, here's one idea about the consequences of sin. There were some sins in the Old Testament considered to be too bad for full redemption. You realize that? You know, there were some, most sins you could go and you could get a sacrifice or make an offering or do a washing and you could be purified, which meant you could be forgiven and be reinstated with the community. But in the Old Testament, this is harsh, but there were some things that were too bad for a person to be fully redeemed. Murder. You, you, you could be forgiven of the sin of murder, but you could not be reinstated into the community. In fact, in Bible days, if you killed somebody intentionally, what happened? It was life for life, wasn't it? It was life for life. That's one of the reasons why our country has a death penalty, and it's not been exercised very much in the last many years. But that's one reason, because it's, if, if you shed blood by man's hand, your blood shall be shed, is what the Scripture says. Okay? So there was the idea. Now, you could get forgiveness of that sin. You, you may get stoned, but at the stoning, you would, you would have a chance to make your amends with God and confess your sin, but the sentence would be executed. You see what I'm talking about? That's bad. Uh, many sexual sins in the Scripture were, were deemed, you couldn't get full redemption from sexual sins. Uh, you would be stoned, which you think about most people in our culture wouldn't have been able to live in ancient Hebrew culture, mostly, you know. Dishonoring the Sabbath was a major, major sin, okay? Sacrificing a child, it says specifically sacrificing a child to Molech is, is, a, is one of those sins that you can't get full redemption from. Eating meat offered to idols that has blood in it is irredeemable, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, here's one for you. An overly rebellious child. You know, the Bible says if the child is too rebellious, you know, and, and they will not straighten up. I mean, this is, this is shock to a modern mind that that child was to be taken out and stoned. And somebody said, what? You're going to kill my baby? Oh, no, we ain't got to do that but one time. <laughs> I know that, that's not really a funny thing to laugh at, but, but what, would, what would happen if you knew that law was in place and there was people that would put it into practice if you didn't act right? What would happen to all the kids in that world, in that community? Ah, oh, man, I mean, somebody says do this, and they say, yes, ma'am, I'm on it. <laughs> yeah, we, we could make, yeah, never mind, I, yes, I, I, I'll agree with you on that. Uh, you see what I'm talking about? Now, there's several things we, we could list there, but that just kind of gives you an idea. You've heard, heard the expression in the Old Testament, to be cut off from my people. They shall be cut off. Um, now, the only people that we know really that exercise this idea is like the Amish. You know, you, you hear people being cut off from their society or for their, from their communities. But the idea of cut off means to be excommunicated, which means you 
no longer live here. You don't come through these city gates anymore. You live out in the wild or the Gentile, wherever, but not here, right? Or cut off could mean the idea of flat out executed. It's pretty severe, isn't it? I just want you to hear these kind of things. It's going to make sense in a minute. So these purification rituals. So, so when Jesus pardons the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 10, do you realize what kind of shockwaves that sent through that culture? I don't know. We, we read that story and we're glad he did it. I mean, that's, that we, we, we see that. But the shockwaves that would have been, because... Her particular sin was something that was absolutely unrecoverable, irredeemable. In fact, when they brought her to Jesus, what did they have in their hands? They had stones in their hands because they were serious about this thing. And Jesus appeals to a higher law than the law of stoning or the law of cutting off. He appeals to a higher law because him being God in the flesh, he appeals to the law of forgiveness and he forgives. It's shocking. And instead of people rejoicing that this woman was forgiven, they wanted to kill her and Jesus after that. It's, it's kind of crazy how people think. So when Jesus forgives the sins of a lame man, remember the guy that was lowered through the roof? The friends lowered him through and Jesus looked at this man who was laying on a bed who needed his legs healed and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And they said, Woo! Who can forgive sins but God? So Jesus goes past all of these purification laws and rituals and he being God in the flesh, he pronounces forgiveness. Now it's okay if Dawn does something against me, her and I work it out and I forgive her. That's, that's right and perfect to do person to person. But Jesus doesn't, this man didn't do anything against Jesus. Jesus wasn't forgiving this man because of an offense that he did towards him or one of his disciples. He was just generalizing all of this man's sin and said, your sins are forgiven. And they, their response was, who can forgive sins but God? We had never heard anything like that. Who, is this, who does this man think he is? Jesus appealed to this idea of purification, but it came from the pronouncement of the king of the kingdom of God. All right. Now you hear all this stuff about the unredeemable sins and all of that kind of thing. It makes you really thank God for the new covenant, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you've been through some of the things we've been through, even after we've been saved, some of us, you know, that God is able to redeem and forgive because of Jesus. And what you see in the Gospels with Jesus doing these audacious things that absolutely nobody had seen or heard, it is absolutely an inauguration of this new covenant that's coming when Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected and the new covenant is enacted. That is what he's talking about, that there are no sins that cannot be forgiven underneath this new covenant. The old covenant, yes. And it was there for a reason and it was on purpose. God made it that way. The new covenant, come, my blood will cover it. That's a good, that's a good, no wonder it's called good news. Especially if you're like us, a bunch of Gentiles. <laughs> anyway. Israel, this idea of purification in the laws and the ritual, Israel was to be a people who were aware of sin and they were aware of its horrific consequences. They were to be a people that was like, that's, that's one reason why they, they were to live like nobody else lived. Okay. 
And Peter would say that it was really a hard way to live. It was more than we could bear, really. It was a hard thing to do. The consequences of sin, they were aware of these ideas. The consequences of sin personally, socially, and eternally. Those are big consequences, aren't they? You know, sin has consequences on you and I personally. Sin literally changes the makeup of who you are. Created in God's image, sin mars that image and causes you to be transformed and changed into a different kind of person than what God intended for you to be in the first place. And we know this. Sin just it has consequences severely personally on us because it, it affects our psyche. It affects the way we view ourselves. It affects the way we view people and life and, and, and you know, the esteem issues we have and all that kind of... It's all because rooted in sin, there are consequences to sin personally on a person. Every time you sin, you become a little less of who you're supposed to be. It just is. There's, there, there are consequences to sin socially. Our communities degradate when people sin. Not communities of faith, but communities in general. It gets a little worse and worse. And then what happens if you have a whole bunch of people involved in sin in a society? What happens to that society? Well, you've got poverty right behind it. You've got crime right behind it. You've got all kinds of dishonesty and all kinds of evil stuff right behind all of that socially because when sin finds a, an accumulation of people over it, societies change and darkness begins to push in. You know what I'm talking about. We're seeing that happen. And then, of course, the most important consequences, the most tragic consequences of sin is the eternal one, what the Bible calls eternal death, which is eternal separation from God, which nobody wants to experience that. So it's the idea of Israel to be aware of sin and its consequences and the idea of the confession of sins. Israel is to be aware of the forgiveness of sins and atonement, the idea of atonement. I don't have time to talk about that, but the Day of Atonement is right around the corner on the Jewish calendar. Okay? It's, I'm not sure what day it is, but it's real soon. It's, it's this week, I believe. So in all of this, the idea of sin and, and the idea of God's forgiveness and atonement, Israel is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. They are to show people that this is the way God operates. This is the way life is to operate. All right? And, the, and, and they were cultivating wisdom, which we have to too. And these, these laws and these purification laws and these idea that, that there's a need for baptisms is to make us wise to the sinful nature of humanity. You know, in the last few couple decades probably, or, or maybe a little bit more, we have become less aware of the sinful nature of humanity. And we have become a people who are trained from psychology to see that everybody is good. <laughs> Does the Bible teach that in the idea of psychology? The Bible teaches us to be wise to the sinful nature of humanity. And you mamas know this, no matter how cute your baby is, no matter how goo goo and giggly they are, no matter how wonderful they are, you realize sooner or later that they have a sin nature and that sin nature is not a really nice thing. You know what I'm talking about? So people in the scriptures are this mixture of good and evil. In fact, when they ate the tree, the tree was called the tree of the knowledge of what? Of good and evil. People... After sin came into the world in Genesis 3, we became this mixture of people who have a, a good part because we're created in God's image, and that's why people who are not saved and they don't know God and even can be atheistic towards God, they can still do good things. They can still love their children. 
They can still love their spouse. They can still maybe even be philanthropic and, and give and all that kind of thing because there's that element of good because of God still involved in, that, in, in, their, in their creation, in their life, in their being, even though they're not, he's not recognized. But then there's this mixture of evil that comes in, sin. And here's what we know from Scripture. We know it from history. We know it from our own experience. We know it from our own history, our own personal history. That the evil side dominates if not kept in check. Your life, my life, society, if evil is not kept in check, it'll dominate. So we've got to be wise to these things. We have become unwise to it. You know what's happening in all these movements? The, all the socialism and Marxism and all the stuff we're seeing happening in our country, they take God out of the equation because God is not needed because people are by nature good. That's one of the ideas. Is that true? Lord have mercy. That, that's just, that's, that, that, that is a naivety towards human nature. All right, now let's, so, so we're also to be wise, not just towards sinful nature, but we're also to be wise to the gracious nature of God. Scripture teaches us that as well, all right? And because of the sinful nature of people, this is why there's a need for family structure to kind of put boundaries on that idea of evil and, and hopefully eradicate it out of a person's life, leading, leading them to Christ so that then they can live in the goodness of God and the goodness of what he wants, the good works, so to speak, that he has for us. This is why there's family structure. You know, family structure didn't come in until after the fall. And then the man was made head over the woman. And God said, the woman's not always going to like it, but this is the way it's got to be for now. So I'm talking about family structure. It, it doesn't mean man over woman. It's husband leading his wife. Does that make sense? It's not man over woman. That's, a lot of churches preach that kind of thing, that, that men are superior to women. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. In fact, it says that God created male and female both in his image and likeness. And that to have God's full image and likeness, you can't have it without a man and a woman. Whether it be a husband and wife or men and women in a community or whatever that might be. We need both expressions. And which is more important? Well, they're both important, aren't they? Because they accentuate and accent each other. All right? But when it comes to the family structure, which is to be the, the actual fabric of a nation and the people, there's this family structure. That man is the head of the woman. The woman is to lead with the man side by side, but the man is the head being the responsible figure of the family. And the children are raised in that structure. That's God's ideal. Okay? Why is that, why is that set? Because of the sinful nature of man. Why, why do we have governments? Because of the sinful nature of man. There's a need for laws. There's a need for judicial systems. There, there's a need for all these checks and balances that we have. Why? You know, our founding fathers in America knew that. That's why they put checks and balances in our government. That's why they put certain laws in action. Because they, they said this in, in their uh, uh, briefings and all that kind of thing in the constitutional conventions and all that kind of thing. The reason we had this is because we dare not underestimate the sinful nature of man. Where did they get that idea? Well, the scriptures and life. Right? So there's a need for teaching and training because of the sinful nature of people. Uh, worship experiences, discipline, and communities of faith, and 
mercy and forgiveness and the idea of baptisms and purification rituals. All that leans into the idea the reason we need these baptisms and purification rituals is because of the sinful nature of people. God has an answer to take care of that and to help. He's got medication for it. Let's say it like that. All right. Now, here, here's just some pictures here. This may help you. Uh, baptism, Christian baptism is, is not a, necessarily a new idea. Okay. These are called mikvahs. Okay. These are baptismal pools. These are sites from ancient Israel. Okay. I'm not sure the sites. These are my pictures. I'm not sure where I took them from. Um, after you look at all these rocks, they all look the same. And you can't remember where you were if you didn't write it down. I can promise you that. But these are mikvahs. Okay. These, these two right here are ancient. These would have been outside of a synagogue somewhere in the Galilee. This is like a modern day mikvah. You would find this maybe in a, a, a modern day Jewish synagogue or you may find it in, in a, uh, a Jewish person's home as well. Now what were these? These were baptism pools. Okay. Started back in the time of the Pharisees when they put the synagogues in. What a person would have to do before they entered into the synagogue, they would have to go through what the idea of mikvah, which is baptism. It's the idea of mikvah. They would have to go through these cleansing rituals before they even entered into the synagogue. Okay. Anybody know anything about Islam? That's not our subject, but anybody know anything about Islam at all? About mosque and things like that? You ever, ever been to a mosque? where they had the fountains on the outside, they still practice this idea today where you have to go through these, these cleansing rituals and do all that kind of thing. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's like a, a normal thing in the East. Okay? It's a normal thing in biblical culture as well. Now imagine this. Before you go into the synagogue, you had to go and cleanse yourself from your sins through the waters of baptism. There would be pools for men and for women. You had to go. Nothing could be between you and the water. Okay? So that meant that you went all the way down to your skivvies. Okay, nothing could be there, and you would go into the waters, you would cleanse yourself for the forgiveness of sins, and then you would be prepared to worship. I say we dig a hole in the front of the church right out here, <laughs> and I'm glad our worship experiences will get a little bit better. Either we have less people, but more serious about what they're doing, or folks, some folks will get right with God. I'm, I'm just saying that these, these things, Jesus almost certainly, you know, we didn't have any. We don't have any idea. I mean, there's no sign Jesus was baptized here. But we're almost certain that Jesus went through these rituals himself. Okay? Now, this is where I recommend. I recommend, don't think me crazy now, and I'm not trying to resurrect some old law, but don't think me crazy. What I think you ought to do is turn your shower in your house and your bathtub in your house into a mikvah. That when you go through your purification rituals for your body, do the purification rituals for your soul while you're in there. That's, 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 that's that idea. It's, it's a place of bathing and washing is what it is. You see what I'm talking about? So when you rub-a-dub-dub scrubbing in the tub, you know what I'm saying? Lord, I pray you'd forgive me of my sins. I pray you'd help me. with Maybe it's a specific thing you need help with. I think it would change the way you look at some things. Okay. Now we're not going to make it a law, not going to make it legalism or anything like that. I just recommend that to you. It'd be a good idea. You're brushing your teeth. You're doing your cleansing rituals, brushing your teeth. Your purification ritual, getting your bad breath out, right? How about saying this? Lord, help me with this old tongue I got. It's tearing up everything around me. 
I need you to help me to speak life today and not death to everybody I come in contact with, my children and my husband and my wife, my employees, my co-workers, my kinfolk. Stop. See what I'm talking about? We got them. We just use them for body situations and not soul situations. I recommend you combine the two. So, so to speak, kill two birds with one stone. You can brush your teeth and cleanse your tongue all at the same time. Isn't that good? Because Jesus can get out what Chris can't get out. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, that's that idea. Now, here's here's purification idea. Remember, y'all just studied this water to wine story in John 2. Didn't y'all just do that in Sunday school, right? You, you remember reading across about the purification pots? Okay, those were part of purification rituals. Uh, the story tells us right there, there were six stone pots. They were 20 to 30 gallons each, which means, I mean, that was like half of a 55-gallon drum. I mean, that's big. That's a big purification pot, okay? It'd be a lot of toting for somebody that had to go to a well and get that thing done, you know, or a camel or a mule or something. And these were for the manner of purification of Jews, which was a part of the tradition of the elders. Now, anytime you see that idea of the tradition of the elders, that's the idea that they added some things to the law of Moses for the sake of people to become obedient to God. That's that, that's that idea. And Jesus said, be careful with that because these traditions can actually make the word of God of no effect. He, he scolds them all that. But these purification pots were for the washing of hands. They were for the washing of feet. You know, the lady that comes in and washes Jesus' feet, where do you think she got the water from? Well, somebody had one of these at the front door when she walked into that man's house. She got some water and she went in and washed his feet. Okay? Now, I just want you to see these things when you, when you come in contact with Scripture. I just don't want you to be ignorant of it because so many people just read through these things and they don't get the idea of the depth of what's going on and what can happen in their own soul. All right? They used it for the washing of cups and vessels and things of that nature. You remember that? I mean, they didn't have, you know, dishwashers and all that kind of stuff. You know, they didn't have a lot of running water in that culture, not in biblical culture. Okay? And it was for the idea of cleanliness and purity. Now, we, cleanliness, like for real cleanliness, not, not just soul cleanliness, but for real, clean your hands. I haven't we heard that more than we wanted to in the last six months. Everybody, wash your hands. I wonder what people were doing before the last six months. Was nobody washing their hands? Maybe that's what the problem was. I don't know. But it was also for the idea of purity. Now, that's the idea between you and God. It's not just clean hands. That's talking about clean heart. Okay? The idea of purity. Right? Just want you to understand these kind of things when you come across them. All right? Now, oh, man. All right, let's cover this one and we'll go. I'll get to this, the last one, the baptism of John. We'll, we'll cover that next week, all right? Here's another idea of baptism, okay? Again, this is a repeat. Baptism is the idea of washing, okay? Now, we're talking about the teaching of the doctrine, the teaching of baptisms, okay? It's the idea of washing. Now, I want you to hear this idea, the washing of water by the Word, okay? Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. Now, what I want you to hear is what is the cleansing agent that God wants to use to clean you up, okay? All right, and, and we all need it. 5, 26 and 27 says this, that he, that Christ, might sanctify and cleanse her, talking about the, the husband and the bride, Christ and the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, the bride of Christ, should be holy and without blemish. 
Okay, without blemish. God's washing out the spots. But what is he using, according to this passage right here? Because this is an idea of baptism as well. What is he using as a, the cleansing agent? What does this say? The Word of God. Now you think about that now. That Christ might sanctify us, cause us to be set apart wholly to Him, and to cleanse us, which that's a constant need in our life, if for nothing else. I mean, it, you may be doing stuff wrong that you need cleansed from and cleansed out of you, but just being in this world, you pick up all kinds of stuff. Okay? So there's a need for cleansing no matter what. And he cleanses us with the washing of water by the word. You know, the main, the main agent we use for cleaning of our hands, cleaning of our bodies, the main, we, have, we add soap to it, but the main agent of cleansing is water, right? God says there's some cleansing I want to do on the inside that that water can't get to. There's some cleansing I want to get. And I've got a different kind of water. That if you take it in and let it wash you or baptize you, that word can go where no water, physical H2O, can go. That rhymed, didn't it? That, that water can go. The word can go where no water can go. It's the cleansing of water, the washing, this idea of baptism. Now, okay, so now think about this. That when you hear teaching from Scripture, maybe it's a challenging thing that you hear. Something perks up in your spirit. So, man, poof, that's tough. I, I, I need, need to get more idea about that. Live into that. That word begins to work on you. And it says that he wants to take us to make us holy and without blemish. You know, some blemishes, if, if you're washing your hands, some blemishes or some stains or whatever, you might get a little mud on your hands. You stick it under the water. It just comes off real easy. But what if I got some paint on my hands? What I got to do a little bit on that? I got to scrub it a little harder. I got, it's, got, it's going to take a little bit more time, a little bit more effort to do that. You know, the same is true in our soul. There, there are things in our soul that it's readily taken care of. It's, it's, it's easily washed out and, and we let go of it. Then there's other things that, man, he's been working on that attitude from, the, from day one. Still, well, let's, let's, keep that, let's get that anger out of there. Let's, let's get that, that attitude and let's get that lust out of there. Let's get that... that that, that wrong, I, that, that temptation keeps taking you down that same path. Let's, and he keeps rubbing and washing. And what does he use to do that? His word. So now I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, okay, I've talked about some other purification rituals. I'm, I'm saying you need another purification ritual that will wash you. You need to have a steady intake of the water of God's word. And that water will wash over you Wash over your soul, over your spirit, however you want to say it, over your spirit. It'll wash over you and cleanse you. So I recommend you do it in the mornings, if, if at all possible. You get up, first thing you do, after you do some, maybe some of your things, get woke up. Get that word and intentionally let it wash your soul. Let it wash over you. That doesn't mean every day is a hard day. That doesn't mean every day is like bearing down and just trying to get that old bad habit out. But over time, as we continually take in the Word, there's something supernatural that happens in a person's life as they get immersed in the Word of God. That Word then becomes flesh in them, and they become a transformed person. You see what I'm talking about? That's why people who don't have a steady diet of the Word struggle with things that they really don't have to struggle with. 
if they would just get underneath that cleansing fountain, so to speak. So, so look at your dailies, your devotions. Look at it like this. He's going to take this water, this, this word, these words that I'm going to read. He's going to take that, and somehow or another, it's going to wash over me. It's going to help me today. It's going to clean me up a little bit and get me prepared for my day. Now, most of us wouldn't go out of the house without getting prepared bodily. Why would we go out of the house without being prepared in our soul? Because at the end of the day, what's on the inside of you will be far more important than how your hair looks. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Well, we want you to still look pretty, you know what I'm saying, as best you can. Or, you know, still do the best you can with what you got. <laughs> but get your soul prepared. Why would we leave the house with an unprepared soul? You, you, you're going to be defeated before you get out the door if you're not careful. You see what I'm talking about? That's another idea of baptism. Maybe just want you to see that, okay? Ah, that's a lot more. We're going to talk about the baptism of John next week. We're going to talk about the baptism of Jesus next week. We're going to talk about... Uh, and then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about. Okay? Good stuff. You all right? Ah. I got technical on you a little bit tonight, but I hope you understand because you're getting all these foundations of what baptism is. And then when Paul starts talking about all this and when Jesus talks about all this, you begin to pull it together. You say, ah, that's what he's referring to. Because God really does want you clean. He'll take you dirty, but he wants you clean. Any questions, comments before we pray and before we go? See, this is the foundation.